Who decides medicine prices? How are vaccines made? Have questions about the healthcare industry? Welcome to 19 Conversations. Today, we're asking Dr. Kuhn Berden, the Executive Director for International Trade at FPIA, should Europe relocate pharmaceutical production to within the EU? I'm Sue Saville. Thank you for joining the conversation. So welcome, Dr. Berden. The pandemic, of course, has intensified the focus on bringing drug manufacturing back to Europe, what's called reshoring, especially relevant then for the manufacture of active pharmaceutical ingredients, APIs, and even more important because of the delays in production, which have led to a slowing down of the rollout of the coronavirus vaccines. And the idea of reshoring has been around for a while, certainly in Europe since 2015. Could you just clarify at the outset, what is the impetus then to reshore production back to Europe? Uh, thank you, Sue. Uh, great to be, be with you. I think that's a very important question to start with. The whole idea of reshoring would be to try to increase your independence from other nations. And the question, of course, is whether that is indeed the solution to uh, to what we're looking at. But there have been indeed various efforts to try and see if there would be unhealthy levels of dependency on other nations or with respect to specific products. And that has already for a lot longer been subject to questions on whether then reshoring is indeed the answer to go. Uh, is that the road to go in order to increase resilience and decrease certain dependencies that the EU economy would have? So what sort of advantages, though, would it bring if you do bring production back onto your own locality? I think that is indeed the big trade-off question. The proponents of reshoring say that, of course, when you put things within your own jurisdiction, you have more control over production and you also can streamline. You're not dependent on other factors apart from a crisis. You're not dependent on political factors that may play in other nations or your bilateral relations with them if you don't depend on imports from these kind of countries. That's the typical set of arguments that you would hear in favor of reshoring, especially the degree of control and the degree of makeability of policy once that is within your own jurisdiction and domain. But of course, then that requires Europe to have the capacity to make all its pharmaceutical needs and indeed the skilled workforce. Are those a given? Uh, so, as you can imagine, I think there are quite a few challenges to the concept of reshoring. I think with respect to the objective of having a certain degree of resilience and preparedness in case you need it, there is no question that policymakers would like to increase that preparedness. Um, when you talk indeed about do we have the skills, do we have the capacities, from an economic perspective, that question is much, much harder to answer. So uh, I would say that the skill sets are not fixed in time. They are dynamic. They change over time. And that means you need a permanent skills upgrading, permanent development, human resources development in order to be able to do that. You also need to create an attractive climate for the people that you want to have for these kind of initiatives to want to locate and be present in the European Union. The second point is, do you have all the capacities and capabilities in order to do all the reshoring? I think that's an even more difficult question almost because economically, when you focus your resources on one aspect, it means you can't focus on something else at the same time with this investments or with, with the people that you need. Uh, so the question then is, what is the trade-off? The trade-off is not between 
having certain sectors, but having those sectors and not other sectors, because you cannot do everything at the same time. And then the question is, do you want to focus on where there is high value added, where you create the jobs that require higher levels of skills, but also create higher productivity in your economy and have, let's say, people who also earn higher wages, which is then important for the economy overall, or do you want to move to certain parts of the production where that value added is not present? That, I think, is the trade-off question to ask also with reshoring, because we cannot produce everything at the same time. With the lessons of COVID, of course, the pressure is on to ramp up production of vaccines. Is this then the time to be reshoring? Thanks for that question. I think that's very, very imperative one, an urgent one at the moment. So when you look at ramping up vaccine production, there are a few factors that play a role. It's a process that requires a lot of intermediate inputs coming from different countries in order to produce your vaccines. And of course, vaccine production is concentrated in those facilities that are also able to do this. Globally, there are not that many facilities that would actually very easily pick up on vaccine production and just start. Even those companies that have themselves vaccine research and vaccine production are seen to take between three and six months to actually be able to adjust everything in order to produce vaccines. And what I think is really interesting here is that you see that from that perspective, industry is trying to take all possible steps to increase production as fast as possible. Um, Given the limited facilities available that have been approved according to the regulations, according to the checks that are needed and that you need to comply with, you see a lot of voluntary licensing happening between those companies that can meaningfully help at a short moment. You see cooperations between different industries. You see Novartis work with Pfizer-BioNTech. You see different kind of alliances happening in order to increase that production. And even then, with those companies that are best suited because they do vaccine research or they use advanced and complex R&D in innovative pharmaceutical production, they take three to six months. So if you were to reshore, that's a question for years to come and also financially impossible to achieve. The answer for now to ramp up production is mainly making sure that as many voluntary licenses happen across the globe with the producers who have their vaccines approved, working in a cooperative way with other producers to make that happen. Indeed. And of course, it's still a global marketplace. There are competitors around the world. Um, President Biden has signed legislation to secure the supply chain of pharma products in the US. Now the European Commission has adopted what it calls open strategic autonomy. <laughs> Can you just clarify for us, what does that mean and, and how could that work? Yes, I think that's a crucial question because in many countries around the world, you see similar ideas, similar trends given different names. In Europe, the open strategic autonomy is, of course, a combination of two elements. It's the open part and it's the strategic autonomy part. And I think there also come together different views that exist on the topic. So when you talk about the open part, that is really about what is embedded also in the trade strategy that the Commission has put out on the 18th of February, which talks about global cooperation and well-functioning global supply chains. That centers around support for the World Trade Organization, the multilateral trading system, and the, for example, the Trade in Healthcare Initiative, which we think is a very good idea. It focuses on supply chain resilience. When you talk about autonomy, 
the strategic autonomy part, that has more, let's say, tendencies towards the reshoring question you just asked before. It's the one where you look at increasing resilience, but there too, the Commission has made clear, without becoming protectionist. It's reducing import dependencies so that the EU can chart its own independent path, but not alone. And I think that's an important difference, yeah? And isn't that the dilemma, the not protectionist? That's the very difficult tension and balance that's got to be achieved here, uh, trying to not be protectionist, um, but trying to be um, open to interdependence uh, on a global level, having this open strategy. How can that tension be resolved? So that is the, the, the million-dollar question. That's also the one where I think the engagement between the two sides of that open strategic autonomy is key. I believe that one of the ways to do this is, of course, to create appropriate attractiveness of the EU economy to actually be attractive for investments, be attractive for innovation, be attractive for R&D, and all those aspects that actually have as a consequence that you become more resilient and more let's say, independent. I think it's an illusion to assume that interdependence will disappear. What is vital is to manage certain levels of dependencies and make sure that when you have these dependencies, for example, when we talk about dependence, it's typically uh, framed in the debate of how many imports are there versus how much can we produce ourselves. I think an important criterion for dependency, for example, is also how dependent are you on one source of production? Yes, if we are dependent as an EU for 40% or 50% on the import of a certain product or intermediate, but it comes from 10 different sources around the world, how dependent are you? In other words, the question is, if something happens, how can a supply chain relay its supplies so that other suppliers become more important in order to absorb the shock that is hit. That, I think, is a crucial element also to reduce dependency, which is why import diversification should be a key element there as well. And I think there are several ways to bridge this. So one is make Europe attractive to investments, because that's key. And then you do attract the industries that you want to have and look at export of import diversification at the same time. And we've had a good example of that then. Um, was it March last year when India was slowing the exports of some of its active pharmaceutical ingredients? Most of those they sourced themselves from China. Um, doesn't this show perhaps what's needed then? As you say, is it called dual sourcing, having autonomy and flexibility during a crisis, but not reliant just on one source? So it's really crucial to do a very thorough analysis of the kind of dependencies that exist to make one overall policy to put also products you're not dependent on in the same basket as those you are maybe a bit more dependent on and create one policy that affects everything is not going to achieve what the EU wants to achieve in terms of resilience. I think it's important to go to the facts first and to really uh, set a proper diagnosis of what the problem is before you come up with the policy cures. If you misdiagnose the patient, you give the wrong medicine to stay in medicinal terms, the patient may not get better and actually worse off. So I think that's really important. So to your point, it's important, I think, to identify based on that dual definition on dependencies, other individual products or active pharmaceutical ingredients or raw materials that really matter and where the EU has a dependency, a proactive policy could be used and should be used. But for the majority 
of what we see in the innovative pharmaceutical industry is that that dependence is not nearly as high as it is being said to be. And I think factually, that is a really important point. So we did an FPS survey, for example, among the innovative membership, and we found that 77% of the active pharmaceutical ingredients were coming from Europe, 12% from the US, and only 9% from Asia. That includes, for example, Japan. So it's not just India and China, it's also Japan, it's the entire Asian continent. Now, since that is, of course, the innovative pharmaceutical industries picture, we also asked an independent think tank, ESAIP, to look at using Eurostat data, so the publicly available data, to look at what the import patterns are with respect to active pharmaceutical ingredients, but also antibiotics, vaccines, etc. And for active pharmaceutical ingredients, where relatively speaking, the EU is more dependent on imports compared to the other uh, categories, we see that still 71% of the APIs are sourced in Europe, 9% comes from the United States, and only 8% from China and 3.4% from India. So that means, and that I'm not saying that within that 8%, there are not some specific products where that dependency exists, and that is really key to get into, but to say that Europe depends very heavily and is dependent on imports from China and India is factually not correct. And that's an important starting point also for the diagnosis and, and let's say, the, the policies going forward. Indeed, really interesting data there. Thank you. That's really helpful. So does this mean then that the idea that's often said that you need geographic diversity to make a supply chain resilient, is that not necessarily so for the case of Europe? So... I think there are two elements. One is that the EU is, of course, a very large and wide economy. So it has a large domestic market. And even within the EU, there is a lot of diversity among member states. So that adds in, in a way to the resilience question. But I think when you talk about geographic diversity globally, there is a very crucial argument why that is important. In fact, there is nothing worse that could hit our planet than a global pandemic. Why? Because it hits globally. If you look back at 1997, you had the Asian crisis, the financial crisis. It was a crisis that used supply chains also globally and was impacted. But you saw diversity and agility in supply chains to adjust to a crisis that happens regionally or locally. When you have a global pandemic, that's the worst case. But even then, we see that global supply chains are vital because the crisis has not hit every country at the same time. We saw it hit China first, and then China was at the forefront of the pandemic, importing products needed to combat the pandemic. Then you saw it spread, and you see that slowly China moved from being an importer to an exporter of a lot of products once the crisis there subdued to some extent. And in other regions in the world, let's say Europe or the US or Brazil, it flared up. So the time phasing still allows global supply chains to adjust. It's maybe interesting to refer to an OECD study that was done in October last year, which actually showed a very clear picture. Global supply chains are the most resilient and agile way for economies to cope with shocks. If you reshore and something goes wrong in your economy, you have your autonomy, but you have no alternatives. You have no supply chain set up to address a shock that happens in your own region. So we saw that with the protective equipment at ICU medicines in March last year, where actually 
despite stockpiling by some countries, the production was ramped up to some extent by 900% and more in order to meet demand. And I think that's really important. So it also shares a bit on what is the key element of how global supply chains work. Yeah, You specialize in parts of the production, not anymore in the final product. Now, if you specialize in one part, which you can then locate in the geographically most opportune or relevant location, that specialization leads to both maximization of production, it leads to much deeper levels of knowledge, understanding and expertise on that part of the value chain to increase production. And also it leads to lower prices per unit of whatever intermediate you are producing because you're really focusing on that part. And I think that's the essence of why supply chains are agile. And coming to the specifics then of the COVID examples you give there, clearly we've seen the blocking of exports of some vaccines that have been manufactured in Europe and were destined for further continents. Um, what about then when we've seen these shortages? Does it mean then that there is a case for reshoring in a crisis, uh, but you've actually got to keep diversification for your global supply chains? How, how can that balance be achieved so that you can still be agile, swift in a crisis? Right. I, I think that is an essential question. As I said, the COVID pandemic is a massive challenge and it requires, first of all, I think, very good cooperation between the different actors that need to work together. That's industry, governments, regulators, because none of them can address this challenge on their own. You need that kind of cooperation. So whether that then leads to a need for reshoring, I think not, to be frank. But what is important is, apart from the argument I already raised in improving resilience in your global supply, allowing other parts of the world to pitch in in what you need, it's also essential, I think, to understand how sometimes complex products are. If you talk about the COVID-19 pandemic and you talk about vaccines, for example, Angela Wang said in the, her testimony to the European Parliament that the Pfizer vaccine contains 280 components manufactured in 86 different sites across 19 different countries. What you're telling me is that you would like to reshore all that into the EU. It simply wouldn't work practically. So what I think is a stronger answer, and I must say that the EU is picking up on some of the elements, which is, for example, a stronger pandemic bio-preparedness, the HERA initiative, which is something that is being worked on. I think that's really important. So how do you react when a crisis hits? What is your first and fast response immediately? I think being quick and agile in your response is vital here. And that, of course, is something that could be improved in the next pandemic, clearly. I think the other element, what you're asking is, make sure we have good data. A lot of the challenge that happened last year in March and April was that you hear these stories of shortages, but um, the question is, if the suppliers don't understand where the demand is or where stocks are running out, yes, of course, you get temporary shortages locally. And there was a big fragmentation of systems, healthcare systems measuring things. There were complications with stockpiling. And of course, everybody was scrambling for the same kind of products. So to make sure that demand data are clear and it's clear where the patient need is, is another vital thing. I mean, I'm an economist and automatically we assume that supply equals demand. But in reality, it's much harder. You have supply and it still takes transport and distribution and demand data to get to the place where it's needed. So I think that's a crucial element as well. 
And given those complexities that you described there, is it then unfair that so much of the blame has been put on the pharmaceutical companies who weren't able to deliver everything exactly on time? Has that blame been misplaced? I think when you respond to a pandemic, and I mean, there have been challenges in each of the actors that need to cooperate within the government, within industry, within regulators. And I think uh, Mr. Ryan from the World Health Organization kept on saying, speed before accuracy, make sure you react fast and tackle the pandemic head on. Yes, of course, there have been challenges in production. And the reason for that is the complexity, the fact that the scale up needed for the fact that you understand once a vaccine is approved, it has an infinite demand while production is being ramped up. And that process takes a while. If you look at the timelines in terms of production, they are important and they're promising looking at the quantities that will be produced in the coming months as we near the end of 2021. And of course, also going into 2022. Quantities will come up very fast. But to assume that there are 5 billion vaccines on the shelf is, of course, not possible. And yes, the reality of the challenge, not only in the R&D process, but also in the production, is that you can have setbacks in terms of what you hope to deliver and what is then happening unforeseen and what you can actually deliver. That's always a challenge. And that's a little bit limited to the complexity of the production. We saw, of course, Similar challenges a year ago with hand gels and face masks, but the complexity of a hand gel or a face mask compared to the complexity of producing a vaccine is an entirely different story. And I think not saying that there haven't been issues where, of course, the public stakeholders had hoped for more vaccines. It is more challenging and more difficult than one might think. And I think that's a really key part. Um, I also believe that given the example on the inputs for the Pfizer vaccine, et cetera, that things like export restrictions are unhelpful. They're unhelpful for many reasons because they diversify internal company resources to administrative issues to get vaccines exported. You have challenges with supply chains. You have issues with what will third countries say in terms of this? Will other countries start to follow suit and do the same thing? Uh, there are a lot of challenges with these kind of regimes, and they challenge the global supply chains that are being stretched in order to ramp up production as fast as possible. So then what are the EU policies and how do they relate then to what other countries are doing? How can Europe stay competitive? Uh, the main question here links to the EU has different strategies at this moment under construction or out for feedback or in the phase of being implemented. I talk about the pharmaceutical strategy. Uh, I talk about the industrial strategy uh, that will come out soon. I talk about the trade strategy. And all those tools provide, I think, a unique opportunity for the EU to address some of the challenges. And of course, it's all placed in the context of COVID-19, but these strategies will way outlast, hopefully, the, the COVID-19 pandemic and therefore matter for the long term. I think Europe has a unique opportunity also, when you talk about linking to your question on how can the EU be resilient to use those strategies to look at its global competitive position, let's not underestimate the US is moving at a high speed on innovation, is looking at preparedness, take certain policies. The Chinese are, I think, even more aggressive in strengthening the R&D climate, increasing innovation, focusing on an incentive climate that has as part of the Chinese ambitions for 2030 and 2040, want China to be the leader in healthcare. 
And I think it's really key for Europe to keep in mind that incentive structure, the attractiveness for investments, the attractiveness for clinical trial research, for the higher value added R&D elements of in producing innovative medicines is a vital question for future pandemic resilience. And also, I would say in general, for the competitiveness of the EU economy. Looking ahead then, how can we put trade and supply on a, on a more predictable footing to ensure that supply does meet demand? There are, I think from my answers, there are two points that really matter. One is to make sure that we keep open and resilient supply chains. That's really absolutely key. All the research also from academic sources, OECD, show that that is vital for resilience. The other part, as I mentioned, is the appropriate data part, because you need to understand how to equate demand and supply. If you produce things, but you don't know where they have to go or where they are needed, it's important to, to match that. So that data element is really key. And we saw that in 2020 in the beginning. Same with protective equipment, as well as with hand gels, etc. The same applies to medicines. We cannot say that in one country, the doctors don't have ICU medicines, and in other countries there are stockpiling questions. Yeah, which on the stockpile part, I think it's important to realize too that on the one hand, you may increase short-term resilience because you have some stocks that you can use in case a pandemic hits. On the other hand, if every country in the world at the same time stockpiles, it will simply massively increase demand and therefore lead to shortages. If when the pandemic is over in two years, governments try to decrease the stocks, you will have a depressed market that will make companies go out of business. So there are different effects, I think, that need to be kept in mind when you do these kind of things. Setting up and managing supply and demand in an equal footing, making sure it matches, is a key question. And everybody is working on that uh, also right now. Gosh, thank you very much for all those insights, Dr. Kuhn Berden, Executive Director for International Trade at FPIA. And thank you very much for listening to 19 Conversations. If you liked this podcast, please click the subscribe button to be the first to know when we release our next episode. And please leave a rating and a review. So until our next episode, we'd invite you to join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag questions inspire solutions. Bye for now.